2, spoken by Pastor Sunita Kwanka. Peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I am so happy to see you all here. And if, if I forget to say it, I love you, Metro. <laughs> all right, let us pray. God of all mercy and all goodness, Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning, God. We pray that your Holy Spirit will come and rest among us, Lord, and speak to us, God, and excite us about your word. God, remind us that we belong to you, God. Remember, remind us, Lord, that you are the resurrection and the life, God, and because you live, we can live with the assurance that we belong to you, God. We pray um, for those who question whether or not they belong, Lord. We pray for those who are suffering and hurting today, God, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to them in a new way. Now, Lord, we ask that you would come now and that you would open our ears to hear your word, that you would open our hearts to be obedient to you, God. Draw us closer to you. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of us who belong to God say... Amen, amen, amen. So my parents are from a very small town in North Carolina called Littleton. And the name is the exact descriptor of it. It is this tiny little town that is so small that it only has two streetlights. Yeah, it's one of those places. And so everyone knows everyone. And so there's always this question, if they don't recognize you, it's like, well, who do you belong to? Like, how are you here? Like, what brought you here? And it's this really small place. And both of my parents are from there. And, like, the place is so small that um, my great-grandfather on my mom's side actually was a pastor and baptized my father and his siblings, right? That is just like this one of these small towns. Everybody's interrelated. And so um, they went to the same high school, the same everything. They all know each other. And so when my brother and I used to go to North Carolina for, you know, vacations or Christmas, and people would see us, they knew that we didn't belong there, right? We were outsiders. They're like, who are you? And then they would start to ask us questions, right? And they would look at us, and they're like, oh, you kind of look like someone. You kind of have the same image as someone. And they would say, oh, are you one of, are you related to the Williams girls, right? And so that's my, fa- my mom's side of the family, the Williams. And they said, oh, well, maybe you look like those, you know, the ones who live on 158, Highway 158. That's my father's side, right? So after a while, <laughs> they would figure it out. And once they figured out that we belonged there, um, then they would entertain us and kind of talk to us and everything. And so, so belonging is really important to this really small town because it's so tiny that there's no other reason you would be there except um, that you belong there. Um, and it's actually not just important for small town USA, it's actually important to all of us, belonging, um, making sure that we belong somewhere. And in our text this morning, we're going to find out um, that Jesus reminds us and encourages us and assures us that we belong to him. Now, it may not look like that from the text, but I promise you we're going to get there together. Go with me to Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 40. Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 40. And the word of God reads as follows. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. 
So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. In many ways, this sermon is a continuation of Pastor Doug's sermon from last week. As we saw last week, Jesus is making his way towards the cross. The chief priests and the scribes, or the teachers of the law, are threatened by Jesus' authority and influence. His teaching is counter to their own. They considered him blasphemous. They wanted to get rid of Jesus, but Jesus had gained too much popularity by his preaching and his teaching and his healing that the masses actually loved him. So as we saw last week, they begin asking questions in an effort to trap Jesus. That is picked up in our text this morning. In the first story, the chief priests and the scribes and others want to trap Jesus. In the second story, the Sadducees want Jesus to admit that there is no resurrection. What we see is that in answering their questions, Jesus starts to invite us into reflection and correct some of our assumptions and eventually provides us with truth. Now, as we study how Jesus answers these questions, we see that the questions presented are not really about paying taxes. Nobody really wants to pay taxes anyway, right? right? Nor is it about the resurrection, right? We have tons of questions about the resurrection. Instead, and shout out to Pastor Mike for helping me see this, instead, what their questions are really about are about belonging. They really center around belonging. To whom do we belong? The question about belonging has been raised about Jesus from the beginning of the book of Luke. In fact, the first words that we have recorded in the book of Luke are really about Jesus' belonging. Near the end of chapter 2, the first words said by Jesus, excuse me, are, um, are about belonging. Near the end of chapter 2, Luke records Jesus staying, staying behind in Jerusalem when he was a small child after the festival of the Passover, unbeknownst to his parents. 
He's missing for three days. And when his parents finally find him, they ask him, why did he do this? And Mary asks him, your father and I were worried about you. And he responds, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my Lord's house, in my father's house? And so the question is raised, who does Jesus belong to? Does he belong to his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, or does he belong to his heavenly father, God? Even in the beginning of chapter 20, as we saw last week, the chief priests and the scribes asked Jesus, by whose authority is he teaching and healing? They want to know who he belongs to. Who has credentialed you? Who said that you could preach and you could teach and you could heal? But now Jesus shows that the questions aren't about Jesus' belonging anymore. They're really about ours. Who do we belong to? Let's look again at verses 20 through 26. Keeping a close watch on him, they, meaning the chief priests and the scribes, who pretended, pretended to be sincere, they hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. The chief priests and teachers of the law are looking for ways to build a case against Jesus by entrapping him. They try to soften Jesus up a bit by what we might call uh, false praise. And it wasn't because what they were saying was wrong. It's because they didn't really believe it, right? So it's like when you see someone and they're like, oh, you look so nice, and their voice gets up really high, you know that they don't really think you look nice, right? Right? Or when someone says, bless your heart, and that's the Southern way of saying, I really pity you, right? So there's this, there's this idea, right, that, that they're trying to soften Jesus up, but they don't really believe what they're saying about him, right? They say that Jesus only speaks the truth. They say that Jesus only speaks God's word. And they say that Jesus shows no partiality, but they really don't believe them. They try to soften him up, and then they try to hit him with this tough question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Don't you love this question? Like, tax season is coming up, right? And aren't we secretly hoping that Jesus says, God forbid, thou shalt never pay taxes to a government again, right? That's what we want him to say, right? But that's not what he says, right? But if so, I believe that most of us would kind of write out this religious exemption in church, right? The, the whole church would be full of people seeking a religious exemption instead of having to pay their taxes, right? But that's not what Jesus said. Instead, Jesus discerns their motives. We might call this omniscient, this omniscient power of God, and he sees right through what they're trying to do. But instead of throwing them out or yelling at them, he makes this a teachable moment. The, the chief priests and the teachers of the law want Jesus to look bad in front of people. 
And using this question about taxes, they try to position Jesus in opposition to either the Roman government or the people. They were asking about the Roman tax, and those who were subject to the Roman government were required to pay a poll tax to the government, right? And the tax is highly unpopular to Jews because Jews believe that by paying the tax, they are acknowledging that Rome has the right to rule over them. Now, we learn from this story that's also positioned in Matthew and Mark that there are some other people here, too, called the Herodians. And the Herodians are Jews, but they're supporters of Roman rule. So if Jesus were to say something in opposition to the government, the Herodians would go back and tell, and Jesus could be arrested for sedition. So if Jesus says, do not pay taxes, he could be arrested. But if he says, you should pay taxes, the Jewish people would think that he's a traitor. So the the chief priests and the scribes are trying to put Jesus between this rock and this hard place, or so they thought. But rather than be baited and take sides, Jesus invites us to reflect. He says, show me a denarius. Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription is on it? And he knew that it had the image of Caesar on it. And so he tells them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. He invites them and us to reflect on the question, whose image and inscription are on you? Whose image and inscription are on you? Now, this sounds like a simple question with a simple answer, right? We are made in the image and likeness of God. Very good. Thank you. (laughs) Right? If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, right, we see that it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. So you may try to deny this, or you may not fully live into it yet, but it doesn't make it any less true. You are made in the image of God. Everything about you, inside and out, is the image of God. From the crown of your head to the soles of your feet, your shape, your size, your skin color, your hair, all of it is exactly how God designed it to be in his image. And this is why the special needs ministry is so important. And I'm so very proud of Metro and Pastor Shirley for leading this initiative. God did not make any mistakes when he made us. We are made in his image. Now, of course, our sinfulness can tarnish that image, but it doesn't make us any less God's original and perfect masterpiece. So you're created in the image of God. And if you have a relationship with God, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has imprinted itself on you. So I ask again, in whose whose image and inscription are on you? Right? And then Jesus says, give to God what is God's. Just as the denarius with the image and inscription of Caesar is to be given back to Caesar, so we, with the image and inscription of God, are to be given back to God. Have you given to God what is God's? Have you given to God what is God's? See, this is not about money. 
Although the Roman tax was the equivalent of a day's wages, this is not about cash or coins. This is about something deeper. This is about our tribute. The word Luke uses here is translated from the Greek phoros. Phoros. Now, Matthew and Mark, when they tell the story, they use the word for poll tax. This is not the word for poll tax. Phoros is the Greek, trans, is the Greek word for tribute. It's the Greek word for tribute. It is what is paid to a conquering king or nation. In paying tribute, you acknowledge that this person or entity has power and authority over you. The coin means nothing to Jesus. You remember, when asked to pay the taxes before, Jesus tells Peter to go take a fish so they can pay their taxes and they find a coin inside. It's not about the money for Jesus. The money goes back to Caesar because it's his imprint that's on it. Jesus is more concerned about us. Pastor Doug started this conversation last week when he said, where is your heart? And so I follow up and ask you, in whose image are you made? Who has made an imprint on your soul? Who, and that is who you pay tribute to. If God has done anything for you, if the Holy Spirit has ever impressed itself upon you, that's who we pay our tribute to. But if we took inventory of where we place our time, our talent, our resources, our hearts, what would it really reveal? Who do we really belong to when we take inventory of our life? Is it a store, a game, a job, even people? Have you made your kids the center of your world instead of God? Giving to God what is God's can be difficult because we assume that we have competing interests, right? They asked Jesus this question because their government commitments conflicted with their obligations to God, or so they thought. Jesus' response, however, highlights that we're citizens of two worlds, right? This earthly world and heaven. We have obligations to the earthly world, to the earthly government, taxes, voting, jury duty, but our commitment to the Lord is much greater. God always trumps the government. And should there be a time when our obedience to God conflicts with our obedience to the government, then we must put God first. In the book of Acts, when Peter and John were told to stop preaching about God, they proclaimed, we must obey God rather than human authority. Our tribute our first response, there is no competing interest, is always to God first. But it's clear that even though the chief priests and scribes claim to love God, their loyalty is not to him. They deny the power and authority of Jesus, and here they show their utter disdain for God by aligning themselves with the Roman government instead of with Jesus. They would rather have Jesus arrested and even killed. And they're looking for a way to trap Jesus in such a way that they don't have blood on their hands. But who really cares about a trivial coin when you have given your heart to something other than God? But since we are made in the image of God and bear his inscription, we give God our tribute. Our worship, our loyalty, our hearts, our lives, we render our faith and our obedience to God. Our lives are lived for Christ. This Lenten season just began on Wednesday. 
And it's time when many Christians, not just Catholics, decide to take inventory of their lives and sacrifice something for the sake of getting closer to God. Now, oftentimes people fast from certain foods or maybe from social media, or maybe there's a habit that you've been trying to kick, and so you do this during this Lenten season. The goal is to reflect upon God more and suffer a bit as a way of entering into Christ's suffering as we move towards Easter. Well, this year, I've given up TV. Pray for me. (laughs) It sounds silly, but I have realized that as an introvert, I refuel by being alone. And so it's so much easier to go home on a Friday, sit on my couch, turn on the TV, and not have to deal with anyone else or anything else. But what ends up happening is that sometimes, in my effort to refuel myself, I can spend hours in front of a TV watching mindless television. And that's time that I could have spent in God's Word, I could have spent praying, I could have spent journaling, I could have spent reflecting on God, I could have spent at least some of that time with God. So I have decided that I am giving everything to God this Lent, including my love for TV. Y'all pray for me. (laughs) And my hope is that by spending more time at the altar of God, that God will begin to rub off some of that sin that has tarnished his image in me. And so I encourage you during this Lenten season to, as we move towards Easter, to think about, to take an inventory of your life. Where have you given yourself over to things other than God. How can you spend more time with God? How can you spend more time with the people that God has placed in your life? How can you spend more time in personal worship? This is the question. This is how we give our tribute back to God. And when Jesus says that we owe tribute to the one in whose image and inscription we bear, then it means all of it goes back to him. Even our love for television, all of it belongs to God. Now, first we realize that we belong to God because we bear his inscription and his image on us. The next question before Jesus is that which is raised by the Sadducees. The Sadducees are a part of the aristocracy. They're a politically-minded group that controlled by the, they control the high priesthood. This is the only time we see them mentioned in Luke, um, and it's because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or in the afterlife, and the only thing they recognized in the Old Testament was the first five books of the Bible. This is all important because this um, plays into how Jesus responds to them. So let's look at Luke again, chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they say, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? 
Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now the Sadducees ask rhetorical questions with the hope of getting Jesus to say that the resurrection is not real. They're using a rhetorical device we might call reduction ad absurdum, reduction to absurdity. It is a form of argument that when taken to its logical end leads to confusion or a, or a ridiculous conclusion. They ask about a woman who because of leveret law had to marry each of her husband's brothers upon his death. Now, the purpose of this type of marriage was to provide a legacy for the first husband. So if she married the first husband and, they, and he died with no children, his brothers were then responsible for marrying her. And any children born of that, the first child born of that second marriage would belong to um, the first husband, not to that second husband. And so in their, their, um, in, in their scenario, they postulate that each husband dies, right? And so she's had seven husbands, all seven die. And when in the resurrection, who does she belong to? Who does she marry? Well, aren't we glad this is not the law anymore, right? Women, don't you think you would think differently about who you married if you had to consider marrying his brother at some point too? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of crazy. So they asked Jesus, who does this wife belong to? To whom does this wife belong? And rather than jump on them, Jesus responds really patiently. But first, let me address the elephant in the room. I don't know about the rest of you, but I have a problem with the question, to whom does the wife belong? It kind of bothers me a little bit. But we have to remember that for them, women belong to the men in their lives, either their fathers or brothers or sons or husbands, or in this case, the brothers of the husband. But it was for their protection. Women were cared for through the men in their lives. Prior to marriage, a woman was the responsibility of her father. And at marriage, she became her husband's responsibility or then her son's. But should she become a widow or not have any boy children of working age, she could be impoverished. So the question of belonging, therefore, was essentially for the wife's well-being. And so they asked the question, to whom does this wife belong? But rather than Jesus completely blow their minds by saying she belongs to no man, which is what I would wish Jesus would have said, right? He corrects their assumptions. He says their entire question rests upon an incorrect understanding of the resurrection and an incorrect understanding of relationships. He tells them that they have it all wrong. Let's look again at verses 34 through 36. 
Jesus says, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children. Remember that. Underline it. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. So is Jesus giving a shout out to all the single people? Right? Only we're getting in. <laughs> Not quite. I wish. Not quite. Right? What he says is that the resurrection cannot be assumed to follow our present earthly traditions. In the new age, inaugurated by the return of Christ, there will be no marriage. There will be no procreation because there is no death. There is no need to procreate. How we imagine life now will not be about how life will be in the resurrection. We will be immortal. There will be no concern of death. We will be imperishable with no concern of sickness or age or wasting away. We will have physical bodies that will be recognizable, but praise God, we will be transformed. There will be no sin, and our relationships will be different. Marriage won't be necessary. Not that marriage is a bad thing. Not at all. God created it, and he ordained it, and it is good. But Adam needed a helpmate, and Adam needed companionship. But in the resurrection, we have the greatest companion and the most intimate of relationships. The way we imagine relationships to be in heaven will be completely different from how they are on earth. That's one of the differences between this age and the age to come. There won't be husband and wife the way we recognize it here on earth. And this fictional woman won't have to figure out to whom does she belong, which husband is hers. She will be in the presence of God. It won't matter. We don't know all the details but they will all be there, along with all those who have gone before her. But they will not be husbands or fathers or brothers or sons. We will all be co-worshippers of the great I am. There will not be a loss of companionship or the anxiety of confusion, but only gaining the awesome presence of God in all his glory. It reminds us of what Isaiah says when he said he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's when the angels cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We will be worshipers of God, and we won't need those other relationships in the same way. So in response to the question, to whom does this wife belong? Jesus says, she belongs to me. She belongs to God. There is no relationship that will override her relationship with me. And that's the same for us, Metro. We belong to God. There is no relationship greater or more important than our relationship with God. We belong to him now and for eternity. Now, I hope this offers a little bit of comfort for those of us who are single. 
We can look around at our married friends and we can be a little envious or, or feel as though we're missing out on this incredible relationship. But the truth is, what God's word says is that the marital relationship pales in comparison to a relationship with him. He is eternal. Marriage is not. Even the best of marriages cannot hold up to the love, companionship, and intimacy of eternity with Christ. God's presence is sweeter. God's relationship is stronger. His love is greater. Married or not, we belong to God. And God's vow to us lasts beyond death. And finally, there's another question hidden within the question of the Sadducees. They ask about the wife, but they're really asking, to whom does the future belong? To whom does the future belong? Do we just die and that's it? It's a question many of us have asked at one time or another, I'm sure. And remember, the purpose of the question from the Sadducees was to get Jesus to say that the resurrection is not real. Jesus corrects their assumptions about relationships, and now he offers a little bit of truth. He speaks to them in ways that they understand. They believe in the word of Moses, in the law of Moses. So Jesus goes back and shows them the consistency of God from the beginning of time, and he reminds them of Moses. He says that Moses understood God to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But how could that be? By the time Moses was alive, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already dead. So if it is true, and it is, that God is the God of the living, how could God be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Dead people cannot have the Lord as their God. Jesus says that they are alive with God, and they will be alive with him in the bodily sense at the resurrection. Jesus is pointing out that where the Sadducees only see death, God only sees life. Now, you may be wondering by now, well, what does that have to do with me? It's 2018, and you're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's crucial to us. If we saw last week that, the corner, that Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith, then the resurrection is the foundation Paul describes it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 through 17, Paul says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And verse 17 is important. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul reminds us that it's not just that Christ died, that our sins are forgiven. It's the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead that our sins are forgiven. His resurrection proves that he has power over sin and death. Muhammad's bones are still buried somewhere, and Buddha's bones are still buried somewhere, but when they went to the tomb of Jesus, they found it empty. 
Our Lord is alive and is risen. And it's because Christ is raised from the dead that we have the power over our sins. We have the victory because Christ has the victory. To whom does the future belong? It belongs to our risen Lord and Savior. And we belong to God. We are God's children. We are worthy to take part in the age to come because we have put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. We will be there at the resurrection along with God. We who are married and we who are single, in this life, it will not matter. The only relationship that will matter in the resurrection is our relationship with God. The only relationship that will matter is the one in which God has told us that we are his children and we belong to him. And the best part about it is that God belongs to us. The Bible talks about God as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because God had a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. But God has a relationship, a covenant relationship with us through Jesus Christ. And so we can look to the Bible and see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's still true. But God is also the God of Michael and Jenny and Deborah. He's still the God of David and Kathy and Dan. The God is the God of us as well. And so we can look to our ancestors, but we can also be assured that God is still alive, that God is still our God, that he is still the risen Savior, and that we belong to him, and he belongs to us. Amen. Let us pray.